0: Let's open our Bibles tonight to 2nd uh, Samuel. We're going to look at hopefully chapters 23 and 24 this evening. Lord willing, we'll finish the the book and then the next time we get together, we'll start 1st Kings. Really looking forward to that. You recall as we have looked through these last few chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, especially these uh, chapters 21 through 24, they're really um, appendixes, or appendices, if you will. And they're not necessarily in chronological order. As we've looked at uh, chapters 21 and and 22, uh, we have seen that pretty clearly. And tonight's no different. But we're going to be looking at chapter 23, where David, you'll notice in your... um, in your Bible if you have a section at the top it says David's final words or David's last words. And whenever you think of the last words of anyone they really are significant and and whatever my last words are if I die a natural death before the rapture I hope that they're wise and meaningful rather than something like this. Can somebody get me a tissue and wipe my nose? <laughs> or, can I have some more painkillers? I hope that my last words have value that they 're wise, and a why, a person 's last words often really tell the tale of their heart and their life doesn 't it and a lot of times where we were caught off guard and, and and for those people who have had their last moments had the opportunity to speak last words that people could hear they they do. Are, they are significant, and I, I was. I did a search, and I just kind of was curious of what some people's last words were. Some people in the world. I know Kurt Cobain. He his last words. It's better to burn out than to fade away. <laughs> I don't know that that's really a wise saying. <laughs> Steve Jobs. His final words were, "Oh wow." And he said it three times, actually, in front of his family. So I don't know what he was seeing. I'm hoping it was the Lord coming for him. That would be certain to be something to be say oh wow about. Todd Beamer, the one who was in that hijacked Flight 93, remember as it crashed in Pennsylvania, his last words to his family or to the words of the people there were, let's roll. Elvis Presley, his famous last words. I'm going to the bathroom to read. (laughs) And John Quincy Adams, his famous last words were, This is the last of earth. I am content. And Jane Austen, I want nothing but death. I wonder if she was in a lot of pain. But just to think of somebody's last words, and most people, when they near the end of their life, their last words usually indicate... um, Probably don't. You know, most people's last words aren't that they wish they had spent more time at the job. That I wished I had put in more overtime at work. I wished I had, you know, uh, enjoyed my hobby more. Most of the time, people's last words are about family and about who they're leaving behind and how they're going to leave them, because that's what's all that's left after they're expired is their legacy, what the people who they're leaving behind. And David. And these first seven verses of chapter 23 are telling as well. And David tells us that God spoke to him. And specifically, David spoke these, or God spoke these words to David. He said, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. David also acknowledges that he and his house was not worthy to receive these words. But that he, David, he clung, notice, to God's everlasting promise, which we will see, that, that God had made with David. He clung to that promise. And so David's last words are really God's words of exhortation and God's promise to David. And David's confidence, ultimately, in God's ability to follow through with it. I think that's really something. And what a great legacy for all of us to those um, who would follow after David. At my end, I would rather say something that the Lord has already spoken to me or maybe something of his word, an exhortation from the word of God. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, what did he say? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then his final words were, it is finished. The price has been paid in full. I think those are some pretty significant words. And so David is going to do that. Let's look at those Just verse 7, 1 through 7. Let's read through those, and then we'll come back and get into it, okay? So notice what it says. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, And this is his words. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. Those are God's words to David. And then David responds, and he says, Although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place." And so these are David's final words. These are the words that God spoke to him, and there's David's response. And I love that because David just basically says, you know, this is what God said to me. God has made me accountable. (laughs) And God has made me sweet and precious promises. Has God made you a precious promise? Throughout the word of God, there are many precious promises that he's given to his church, that he's given to Israel And maybe even he has spoken to you a verse of scripture or something that he's just spoken to your heart outside of the word of God, but you're holding on to it. I know I've had those in my life and I had to wait for many years for some of those to come to fruition because it didn't happen when God spoke a promise to me. It wasn't something that he just fulfilled immediately. There were times and and, and even sometimes several years from the moment he spoke something to me until it came to fruition. Don't be discouraged by that. When you look at Moses and you think of all the things that God spoke to him, there were many, many, many years in between where God didn't speak to him, but gave him a directive, and and all he had to do was follow that until God spoke again. And so when we read the Bible, it's condensed truth. And so when we read it, we often think, wow, that must have happened the very next day that this thing came to pass. No, no. There are sometimes between verses, there are years between verses. Sometimes decades, sometimes hundreds of years. But notice in verse 1, David's last words. He says, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high. That's a title, really. The man raised up on high. And another title, the anointed of the God of Jacob. The word anointed there is really interesting. I'd encourage you to underline it because in the Hebrew it means Messiah. One of the things about this chapter, especially these words of uh, these first seven verses, they are prophetic also of Jesus Christ, David's, uh, David's son, but yet David's God at the same time. We're going to see that these words are very applicable to David in his own life, but we're also going to see they're prophetic for what's coming and what would happen in the life of Christ, and even for events that are still yet future to us, and we'll get to that. But notice it says anointed, the anointed of the God of Jacob. It was a title, really, for, for not only for uh, David, but for Jesus Christ. The anointed, the Messiah, that's literally what it means, the anointed one. David was anointed, but this was also speaking of Jesus Christ, the root of David. The root of David. And we see this same word, and you might want to mark in your margin of your Bible Daniel 9.26. Because you'll see in your own English translation, in the New King James Version, you'll see it in Daniel 9.26. And it says, and after 62 weeks, Messiah, there's the same exact Hebrew word, but it it just spells it out for us. Instead of saying anointed, it just says Messiah. The translators thought, you know, that's what it means. That's what it says. We're going to write it. And so that's literally what it means. So it's the same word here as the anointed of the God of Jacob, the Messiah of the God of Jacob. And we know that ultimately David is speaking of one greater than him, speaking of Jesus. And notice the other phrase, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I love that. David being responsible for more than half of the psalms, So now we see David has these names. The man raised up on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. And there's even another one that the Bible tells us. And it's the man after God's own heart. The man after God's own heart. Yes, in spite of all the mistakes that he did, he was still a man after God's own heart. Are you a woman after God's own heart? Are you a man after God's own heart? I would encourage you to be like David and make God the one that you run after. Don't be satisfied for anything until you are, you're holding him, until you're living, <laughs> and just let him have all of you. You'll be most blessed, most encouraged, the more you draw clear, nearer to Jesus. But I can promise you this, the farther you get away from him, it's going to be the exact opposite. You're not going to have any assurance of this blessing that he wants to give you. In fact, some people, some Christians, they, 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 they're saved and they're born again, but they've just kind of died on the vine. It doesn't mean they're going to hell or anything because God, when he makes a promise, when he puts the spirit in you, you're, you're going with him. He, he doesn't take that promise from you, that, that spirit in you. But if we don't feed ourselves, we can kind of just kind of be by the wayside. And we have then no assurance then, do we? Because we're not abiding in him. To abide in the vine means to do what it says. To abide, a vine, when it's abiding, it's receiving the nutrients, and all the branches from the vine are receiving the nutrients because they're abiding in the vine. If they they somehow are able to detach themselves, there's no more life. But David calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel, and as a humble man that David was and had become, I'm confident that he didn't make up these titles for himself. These were things that he probably heard others speaking to him. Notice in verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. And I love that. As we look at verses 3 and 4, um, they're the words that God had spoken to David, and here they are. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, and here is the words. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And it's very possible that this was in the latter part of David's career, his, his reign. And it would seem fitting, whether it's at the beginning or the end, it doesn't really matter when God did this in David's life, because the, the truth is the truth. He who rules over men must be just. That's why God places leaders over us. And it's their job to be just. And we know that many are not just. And God allows them to continue for a season, even if they are wicked. But to rule over men, we must be just. And ruling not only according, not according to our own desires, but ruling in the fear of God. The fear of God, yes. The fear, the awe of God, but also the fear of God. It's very important. And notice... Well, God continues to say, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. And So really short and sweet were the words of God to David. And then David responds here in verse 5. He says, Although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, notice, and secure, for this is all my salvation, all my desire. Will he not make it increase? Notice the honesty, the humility, and the truth in David. This was not David in some kind of false humility, because David's house was a mess. It continued to be a mess. And David lived with the consequences of those decisions that he had made, and that God had told him would come to pass. But God loved David. And David was a man after God's own heart. Can you imagine that? When we, after all that we've been through with David and after all that we've seen, to know that God loved this man, even with all of those horrendous mistakes, the adultery and the murder, and the disobedience at times, the, the prayerlessness. And then there's a handful of places where David inquired of the Lord, Thank God. <laughs> He had his moments, and, and aren't you like that? I mean, hopefully none of us are committing adultery and killing people, but we commit adultery in our minds, and we kill people in our hearts because of our anger and our hatred. We're able to do that. But David had the honesty to say, It's not so with my house. All these things, Lord, that you said are are, are true, and your promises are irrevocable. They're without repentance. Your promises, they're going to come to pass. And I don't deserve them because it hasn't been so with my house. I haven't been the best example. And I love the humility of David. But David knew that he was forgiven. And Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he loves to bring accusation of us to God, always, But if we are believers in Christ and we confess our sins, Satan is wasting his time and God's time as well when he goes before the throne to accuse us because Jesus' blood has cleansed us from all sin. So he's wasting his time. He's wasting his time and he's wasting God's time because we are under the blood if we indeed have confessed and given Christ our hearts. And I know, I believe and hope that we all have. And if you haven't, please do. Tonight, before you leave. Give your heart to Christ. Notice in verse 5, he says, e, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Right in the margin of your Bible, uh, chapter 7. Of course, we're in 2 Samuel. Just put 7 and then verses 8 through 16. This was the Davidic covenant. We're going to read it again, I'm, uh, and I'll just read it to you. I'm just going to start with verse 10. Remember, Dave, or the Lord spoke to David early in his reign after he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle. He brought it back to Jerusalem. What, what did God say to him as he began his reign? It says in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 7, verse 10, Moreover, God says, I will appoint a place for my people. Now remember, this is an everlasting covenant. And these are unconditional promises, many of them in this promise that God made. Some are conditional, some are unconditional. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, no, nor shall sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Because this is God's response to David having it in his heart that he wanted to build God a house. Because David's living in this beautiful cedar palace. And he's like, you know what, why is God sitting out in a tent? I think it started to eat at him a little bit. And he's like, you know what, why am I in this beautiful place and God is out under this thing full of badger skins, dyed red. (laughs) Why is that? And God's like, David. I don't have a problem with you living in a nice house. I, I, I dwell in eternity. I've got. I don't need a house. And when did I ever tell you? Let me. Well, let's just read it because that's what he tells him. So God says, "I have pl- I have planted a house for the, my people." to dwell in and that they would uh, a place of their own to move no more and so shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies the lord tells you that he will make you a house and then when your days are fulfilled and this is a promise when your days are fulfilled david and you rest with your fathers i will set up your seed after you now obviously god is speaking of certainly solomon but he's speaking way past solomon He's speaking of the seed. Compare that to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, who is who? Jesus Christ. He says, I will set up your seed after you, God says, who will come from your body. And that's true because Jesus came from the line of Judah. He came through David's loins and through his line. That's true. He did. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. Notice, not David to build a house. Even though David wanted to build a house, he says, David, you're not going to do it. You're, you're a man of blood. You've got blood on your hands, but your son, your son Solomon, he is going to build me a house. And notice what it says in verse 14. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And here is the conditional promise. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. That's why it's called an everlasting covenant. I will establish forever your kingdom before you, and your throne shall be established forever. He says it twice. Forever. That may, when God repeats himself like that, basically what he's saying is amen and amen and amen. And that is an unconditional promise. This is what I'm going to do through you, David. And that's what blew David completely away. And this was before he had sinned and before all of his mistakes. God had spoken to him this wonderful promise. And notice what David says there in verse 5 back in our text. He says... And you have made me this everlasting covenant, and it's ordered, meaning it's ordained in all things, and it's secure. It is secure, because when God says that he's going to do something, he does it. He does it. He's not dependent on somebody else helping him out. He doesn't need any help. In fact, I'm the biggest liability to him, as I, even as I share his word. It'd be much better if I just read it. Maybe we should do that. But he's also called us to expound on it so that we can apply these things to our life and learn. But notice, all of these things are ordered and they're secure. For this is all my salvation, all my desire. Will he not make it increase? And notice that David knew it was ordained by God and nothing could keep it from happening. Nothing could keep it from happening. And notice that David is resting in the promises of God as you can as well. What are some of the promises that God has given us? As a church, I mean, think of the one that we were looking at recently. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. Is that not indeed a promise? Was it conditional? There's no conditions. He has gone to prepare. He's, he ascended, right? And now he is preparing a place for us that where he is, we might also be. He's going to come for us in the rapture of the church and change these bodies in the twinkling of an eye. Rest in that promise. Let it get into you and let it change you. Because if I believe even that simple promise, that profound promise, it's going to have ramifications in my life. It ought to. It ought to change the way I think about things. It ought to change the way I think about my own future and the future of the world and even the people I'm going to leave behind should he come tonight and take us up. It changes everything, really, if we really think of it, if we let it get down into us. And certainly that's what the promise is supposed to do. Don't just nibble on the promise <laughs> like a fish with a worm. You know, sometimes I, I, when I've been fishing in Florida and we used to um, fish with whole shrimp, we'd put the whole shrimp on, right? We'd throw it out there, and the, the fish were smart. They would come and they'd grab the tail or they'd grab the head, and they wouldn't get the part with the hook where the hook is. And I bring up my shrimp, and half of it's gone. And I'm like, "You lousy fish. But God wants us to swallow the hook. And those, that's when we're caught. That's when you lay out the big ones and they come in. They swallow the hook. God wants you to swallow those promises. Let them get down deep into you and change your life forever. They will. I love it. But notice in our text, it goes back and it says, um, But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. And certainly David knew these enemies in his own life. But the man who touches them, verse 7, must be armed with iron. Notice, iron. He must be armed with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Now, as David speaks of this, certainly he's prophesying of the greater than David. It speaks of the judgment yet to come in this world. Because we know that after the When the church is removed, there is going to be a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation upon the earth. For those who have rejected Christ, and when Christ comes back in his second coming physically to the earth, with us, by the way, after that seven-year period, while the world is is going through this tribulation, we come back with him at the end. And it says in Revelation 19, and and this is what it's speaking of, It says in Revelation 19, verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him. On, a white horse, on white horses, that's you and I, the church, coming back with him. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Doesn't that sound like the two verses that we just read? <laughs> and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Yes, God pouring out his wrath. As you look at verses 6 and 7 in our text, David is hinting at this final judgment. And what does Psalm 2 tell us? He who sits in the heavens, God will ultimately, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I don't know about you, but that's a part of God that I'm glad I will never see because I've experienced the grace and the love of God. I don't want to experience that part of God. But God, as much as loving as he is and as gracious and compassionate as he is, thank God for that. Because if, you're in, if you are with him, you are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. They're saved. But those who are not saved will face, if they do not repent in their last breath and they die, they will face a wrath that is unheard of. And when Jesus comes back, even, even to this earth, it tells us in Zechariah 14, verse 12, and it says, And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. This is speaking of some pretty heated, uh, uh, an extreme heat that he's going to judge his enemies with. And yet it gets even worse because we know that at the white throne judgment, he's finally going to resurrect those who have died with a new body and they will be cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire for eternity. And that's for the wicked dead. But for you and I, that will not be the case for us. Can anybody say hallelujah? It's worth saying hallelujah for. And that's the kind of thing that compels us to share with others, right? But these are the things. You know, the beast and the false prophet, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And finally, Satan, after the thousand years have expired, the devil himself will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And the Bible tells us that all of mankind who have rejected Christ, they will ultimately spend eternity in the lake of fire with those three individuals, often called the demonic trinity, (laughs) Satan, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. So finally in verse 8, we get into another section here. And I would encourage you to check out 1 Chronicles chapter 11. You'll notice a lot of similarities. There are also some differences here. Now remember when we had talked about 1 and 2 Samuel that because of some of the text had been badly corrupted and it's especially noticeable when it comes to numbers and even a few names. But again, don't let that discourage you because the doctrine that is here in 1 and 2 Samuel, the things that we can learn from it, is unchanged. And again, I don't really care about numbers so much, or maybe a person's name that got garbled because of the, the text was so um, hard to read. I'm not worried about those things. But this is one of those books that went through probably the most corruption, the most damage, if you will. And we'll see it as in this next section. Notice what it says. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Beshebeth, sheb- See, let me see if I can pronounce that again. Josheb Beshebeth. His name means one who sits in the seat. The, he was a Tacmanite, a chief among the captains, or among the three. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed eight hundred men at one time. And you may notice if you look at First Chronicles chapter eleven, which is the parallel to this account that something a little bit different is there in verse 11. It says that, that this is a number of the mighty men who, who David had, and he mentions the man's name, a little bit different. It's just a different uh, spelling of his name. But he had a spear. He lifted up his spear against 300 killed by him at one time. And so we have this one passage telling us, um, you know, here it tells us that there's uh, 800 men, and then in Chronicles it tells us that there were 300 men. And evidently, the Hebrew words for 300 and 800 begin with the same letter. And so a, a copyist error is very evident here. And, um, and so we can just uh, leave it at that. You know, we can trust that it's 300. The Septuagint also tells us that it's 300. Verse 9, it says, And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, The Ahohite, one of the three mighty men, with David when they defiled uh, or defied, excuse me, the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated, and he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Have you ever had something where you've held onto it so tightly and for so long that when you finally release the grip, your hands kind of like they were all white and and you had a hard time uh, bringing them off. You know, you might experience that if you're on a, a roller coaster. <laughs> you grab it, and your hands are like stuck, and your muscles are like <laughs> you kind of have to peel them off the, the bar in front of you. But this is one of those men, and I, I think it's wonderful that David had these men around him. Such an interesting relationship that David had with these men, these mighty men. You know, these ragtag group of guys who followed him from the days of his running from Saul and to find that they, they, they continue on with David and his kingdom and, and some of them become great warriors. And you think about what a great thing it is for a king to have such men around him, such faithful men, such men of valor, but men of courage. Because David was a man of courage. He showed these men what courage was really like. He showed them through his actions what faith in God is like. He also showed them what faith in God is not. When David made some of his most horrible mistakes, when he went over to the side of the Philistines for a time, they saw all of this. They learned from David. But at the end of it all, they could say, David, we love you and we're with you. And we're going to stay with you. Because they recognized that he wasn't a perfect man either. And neither were they. But they were valor, men of valor, men of valor, and after him was Shama the son of Agi, the Herarite And the Philistines had gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. And so the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field. He defended it and killed the Philistines. And so the Lord brought about a great victory. So each one of these men's exploits, are, some of them are listed here. And it's really interesting just to see their, their work of faith and their, just their courage. And it says in verse 13, Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was in the stronghold. Probably a cave. There's plenty of caves along um, in Judah and in the the middle of the country. If you go to Israel with us in another year or so, (laughs) when we go over there, We'll drive by. We'll go in some of these places. You'll be able to see them for yourself. It's pretty amazing. So David was in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. David knew of a place. A place where the water was sweet, that he had frequented many times. And as he's there in the cave of Adullam, being held holed up by the enemy, the Philistines, David just has this longing in his heart. Oh, if I could just have a glass of water from that place. And he certainly didn't have any intention of, of actually following through with it because the Philistines were there and the Philistines were in Bethlehem where that water was. But notice... So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. And nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. And these things were done by these three mighty men. And think of the love that they must have had for their captain." I mean, really, this is the kind of thing that armies, the, 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 the armed forces in our country, this is, these are the kind of men that they need. It went way beyond commands, right? When your when you're platoon sergeant or whatever tells you you've got to do this, you do it. you know. But to do something of your own volition because you knew it was the, the fleeting thought or the heart of your captain, and you're willing to risk life and limb to accomplish it, that's, that's the kind of stuff that every king Would love to have. Every king dreams to have men like this that respected him, loved him. And they not only just they not only feared David, but they they really loved him because most people fear a king because they're a lot they're they're powerful and they can do things to you, like throw you in jail. But they loved David. It went way beyond just the natural kind of thing. And this event that we just read in verses 13 through 17 is only recorded here and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And that's all we hear of it. But this is the kind of thing, these are the kind of loyal men that David had in a truly unique relationship. And it's very similar, actually, the loyalty and the, and the uh, devotion that these men had to David was very similar to the the loyalty and devotion that David and Jonathan, remember, had. Remember what it told us in 2 Samuel chapter 1. As David wrote a song after he found out that Saul and Jonathan and his other sons had passed away, David wrote a lament or a song about Jonathan. And one of the verses, it goes like this in, in 2 Samuel 1.26. In the song, he says, "'I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan.'" You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Yes. And David and Jonathan weren't gay. No, this was a love, a brotherly love, a respectful love that is beautiful. It is really beautiful, whether it happens between two men or two women or whatever, to have a, just a deep respect and a love and a devotion to that person. It uh, could be a, a really close friend, and David and Jonathan were like that. And that's the kind of relationship these men, many of them, had with David. Jesus said in John 15, verse 12, he says, This is a, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And these men were willing to lay down their life for, the, for, for David and, and Jesus already laid down his life for us that while we were yet sinners Christ proved his love for us he went to the cross while we were yet sinners who else would do that for you? I don't know of anybody who would do that can you imagine that? that would be like having an enemy from the very beginning they were born and they were your enemy and they, got, they grew up and they were still your enemy they hated you They hated you. They hated you, hated you. And they did so many horrible things against you. And then for you to lay down your life for them. Folks, that is supernatural. You might give your life for somebody that you really love. But for somebody who was at enmity with you all your life? That's the love of God. That is agape love. That is a love that the world needs to see. It's the world, it's a love the kind of the kind of love that the world needs to know. And hopefully they get a glimpse of it through us. Because I believe that believers, born again believers are one of the few people, one of the few agents in the world that God can really show that agape love through if we would let his light shine through us. Instead of being angry and miserable and nasty, we can be loving and compassionate and caring and devoted. And that really takes something of us, doesn't it? That's an act of worship because what we do when we do that is we deny ourselves, we deny whatever we're feeling about somebody else, and we just do it because it's right to do. And we do it because Jesus would have done that for them. That's why it's so hard to turn the other cheek when somebody, you know, says something bad about you. You know, you, normally you just want to let them have it or speak evil of them. Easy to do. That's natural. Any any fool can do that. But to be able to actually keep your mouth quiet and rather just hold your peace, which is something I need to do a lot more. I need to learn this lesson over and over again. Perhaps you're. With me on that, but no greater demonstration of a person's love for you is when they are willing to die for you. Because here's the deal: talk is cheap, but actions demonstrate love. A husband and a wife—they can tell that they—they they can tell each other they love each other all day, but until it—it it actually comes down to actions being performed, that talk is very flimsy, isn't it? I can say I love you, but if I never do those things that please you, I can say I love you to my wife, but if I don't do those things that I know are on her heart, if there are things that I know just drive her crazy and I do nothing to amend those things, then my talk is pretty cheap, isn't it? It's just surface. And that's why love, especially even in the marriage relationship, is so important because that's the love that God has. It's other-centered. It's not concerned about self at all. Self is not even involved in it at all. It's benevolent. Long after the fireworks of the honeymoon are over, that's when a love between a husband and wife I think are really tested, when the, the, the waves of life come crashing in. The temptations come, the difficulties, the money tensions, the, the problems with intimacy, whatever it may be, and all of a sudden it just comes in. And boy, that's when we're really tried. That's when our vows that we made on that wedding day come back to us, <laughs> and we have to be really careful. But let's demonstrate that love in all that we do. Notice in verse 18, continuing on with David's mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. And he lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name from uh, among these three. And we know that David's half-sister, her name was Zeruiah, she had three sons. It tells us in 2 Samuel 2, verse 18, who they are. Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And these were all David's nephews. We know that Asahel was killed by Abner. But this Abishai was a valiant man. Notice in verse 19, it goes on. Was he not the most honored of of the three? And therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. And so even in these mighty men, you see these different um, subsets of men. Other men um, having more influence over, over other groups of men. Sounds like an army, doesn't it? Isn't that what an army is? When you have captains and lieutenants, they all have uh, rule over men under them. And there's no different than that, than what we see in David's life. And so Benaniah, verse 20, was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from cabzeel Kabziel, Kabziel Who had done many deeds, he had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand and so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and then killed him with his own spear. This is a pretty valiant guy. These are the kind of men that surrounded David. What a blessed man David was. And these things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among the three mighty men. And he was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. And Asahel, verse 24, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty as well. And Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. And again, Asahel was David's nephew, his sister Zeruiah's son, who, remember, was killed as he was pursuing Abner. And Abner looked back at him. If you remember, I think it's recorded for us in Second um, Samuel chapter two, verse twenty-three. And Abner told Asahel, who he knew who who this was, trying to come after him. And Asahel was a very light-footed guy. He was very limber and very quick. And Abner was getting to be an older man. And he told Asahel, he said, Asahel, you better stay away from me. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. He didn't want to kill him. And finally, Asahel wouldn't, he wouldn't stay back. And finally, Joab took a spear and, and killed him with it. And then it goes on in verse 25. And other men... Shama, the Herodite. Elica, the Herodite. Helez, the Peltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite. Abiazar the Anaphite, Mabunei, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahohite. Maharahi, the Netophethite. I'm probably butchering these names because I'm an American in, uh, in, in Rochester, New York. But Heleb, the son of Baana the Netophathite. Atei the son of Ribai, from Gebeah, of the children of Benjamin. And Benaniah, a Pirathonite, Hidei, from the brooks of Gaash. Abi-Elbon, the Arbathite. Asmaveth, the Barhumite. Elihba, the Shelabonite of the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Herarite Athiam, the son of Sherar, the Herarite Eliphalet, the son of Abish uh, let me see Ahazbei, the son of Maacathite. Eliam the son of Ahithophel the Gilonite, Hazrai the Carmelite, Perite uh, me see, per, per whatever, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zoba, Bani the Gadite, Gadite, excuse me, Zalek the Ammonite, Nahari the fight, the, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah. Ira, the Ithraite, Gareb the Ithrite. And notice, the very last. And Uriah, the Hittite. Yes, Uriah. Do you remember Uriah? Uriah was Bathsheba's husband before David took her. And this list of men was probably made in the very beginning of David's reign. And these men were alive then. Of course, Uriah, toward the end of David's life, actually, he had died many years prior to this. But this was a man who was a mighty man of valor, who was one of David's mighty men. And yet David went in unto his wife. While he was fighting a battle... Out in the field, David, and they'd been out for several months, actually laying siege to another town, another people. And so they were away for a long time. And David, if you recall, in in Samuel 11 and 12, it tells us that David was out there looking around, and he sees Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, bathing on the top of her house. Within eyeshot of the king's palace, I find that kind of interesting. But David calls for her, takes her to himself, has intimacy with her, has a relationship. And then she comes back and tells him, after a few weeks while her husband is still out fighting the battles, she comes and says, uh, David, we got to look at the test, look at the strip. There's two red lines. Your daddy. He's like, What? And to cover up his sin, he has Uriah put to death. He has Joab set Uriah right in the front of the heat of the battle, and he is killed. And yes, and, and what's really unfortunate about this is that sometimes the greatest scandals and betrayals occur between those who are closest to you. You think about how David betrayed Uriah. And who was Ahithophel? We saw his name in here too, but he wasn't one of David's mighty men. But Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And Ahithophel was one of David's counselors. And yet David, because of his sin, he betrayed not only Bathsheba, and she evidently was a willing participant, so we can't, say that she is completely without fault here. But he certainly, David, had a lot of influence over her, a lot of power as the king. I mean, what woman wouldn't succumb to the king? But yet we see that sometimes the greatest scandals and betrayals occur between those who are closest to you. He betrayed Uriah. He betrayed Ahithophel, the man who was his counselor. And what about Judas? Judas? What about Judas and Jesus? A man who was close to him, his, who he knew fairly well. Judas betrayed Jesus. And what about Peter? Peter denied Jesus. He didn't betray him. Judas betrayed him, but Peter denied him three times. But people that he was really closest to, and we see that list here, and it reminds me of that. But you know, when you think of, we're not going to finish the last chapter, it's going to have to wait till next week, and I'm kind of glad because there's so much in this next chapter, um, there's no way we could uh, get through it. But be encouraged, you know, read this chapter over again and look at First Chronicles 11 and compare these things and look at the differences, some minor differences. But I think it's really telling of David's last words. And and, and that really encourages my heart and and also challenges me. And what are my final words going to be? David's words were nothing silly like some of those other last words that we read from modern day people. David simply proclaimed God's words, that God spoke to him. I think that's pretty awesome to consider. And David also his last words was a, a recapitulation of what God had already spoken to him about the promise that God made to him and to his descendants ultimately going to Christ, the everlasting covenant that God had given to David irrespective regardless of David's performance God was going to do that and I love that so be encouraged you're in good company when I think of all the things that happened to David and yet David is in heaven and maybe you're here tonight and maybe you've really blown it maybe you've made some really bad mistakes in your life you know what? To make a mistake is human, but what you do with that mistake is the most important thing. What do we do with our mistakes? Do we wallow in pity over them and allow them to bring us into a despair and, and, and sorrow and um, you know, uh, cause us to drink find, you know, try to find happiness at the bottom of a bottle or the end of a joint or the end of a pill or, or the end of a relationship, wherever that is? But to know that um, we can rest in the Lord. And no matter what you've done, God can still use you. He wants to use you. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, this passage of Scripture. Lord, I, I especially am impressed with the first seven verses of this. Of just those things that you spoke to David and, and the promises that he clinged to. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word that we would cling to your promises. Lord, the things that, John 14, verse 1 and 2, for instance... Lord, these precious promises, Lord, help us to hold on to them too and to be encouraged and to never be despairing even of the things that we see and even of our own mistakes and failures, God. if we, your, your word is so true and you've said it to us that if we sin, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. May that be One of the things that I remember, if I have that opportunity to speak my last words, that I could say, I know I'm going to heaven because of this. (laughs) I've confessed everything that I know of, and anything that I've forgotten is covered under the blood. So, Lord, have your way with us tonight and tomorrow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.